We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. For several years now, I've been helping schools implement trauma-informed strategies in their schools. Now, as students are starting to come back to school, the need for this is greater than ever. Here's the thing. I'm not a social worker, and I don't pretend to be. So my training really focuses on practical strategies that you can implement in your school without making your teachers feel like they have to be social workers also. I help schools implement trauma-informed strategies so that fewer discipline referrals, fewer dysregulated students, and a calmer, more focused atmosphere. And the best thing is, this training aligns perfectly with ESSER funding, so you don't have to take it out of your school budget. My clients report that they have better sense of how to help their students without adding another thing to their plate. Go to jethrojones.com trauma to read more about it, and let's schedule a chat. That's jethrojones.com trauma. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have Richard Shell on the program today. He is a global thought leader and senior faculty member at one of the world's leading business schools, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He serves as chair of Wharton's Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department, the largest departments of department of its kind in the world. His book, The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values to Advance Your Career, addresses an increasingly urgent problem in today's workplace. Standing up for core values such as honesty, fairness, personal dignity, and justice when the pressure is on to look the other way. Richard, welcome to Transformative Principle. Thank you, Jethro. Great pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate your asking me on. 
Yeah, well, I'm excited to have you here and um, excited to talk to you about this. This problem of knowing when to stand up for what's right is something that plagues everybody. And we have situations where we want to do what's right, but we often don't. And can you give us a little background on why it is that we struggle with doing what we know is right? Oh, sure. You know, it's not because you're a bad person. That's the first thing. You know, I think the two the two things that are the sort of first steps where all of your pressures to do nothing arise is in the first round when you first encounter a situation and what I call uh, you have a duty to observe what's happening and actually call it what it is. And all kinds of rationalizations push you away from even looking at the problem because you know as soon as you look at it, that you're going to face a, a cascade of additional problems that will cause you inconvenience, conflict, and even you know moral identity issues. And you know, rather than go down the road where there's these troubles, your first tendency is just look the other way, pretend it didn't happen. And I think some of the things that prompt us not to see what's in front of us are incentives, and that's all the stuff I just mentioned. You know, you're getting paid a lot of money. And if you look at this, you might put that at risk. So let's just pretend you didn't see it. Uh, or you've got a position of power or control. And if you engage with this, that might be at risk. So just let's look the other way. Uh, or, and this is a, an interesting research finding, very, very often people don't see what's in front of them because they're paying attention to something else. So it could be that they're feeling a lot of political pressure in one direction. Meanwhile, right in front of them is a moral dilemma with a teacher or a student or a community, and they just aren't looking there. And, and they let it kind of get much further down the road than they should because we call it inattention blindness. You're actually not, it's like when you're driving and, and you're paying attention to texting or radio instead of the people crossing the street in front of you. Happens. And it happens in, in conflict situations at work too. So there's that first level of, do we choose to observe it? And then if we do, so we're going to choose and okay, yep, I see what's happening. The second barrier is, do we choose to own it? And Seeing it's one thing, but deciding it's your responsibility to do something about it, that's the second and most difficult step. Because now you're saying, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do about it yet, but I am going to say this is part of my responsibility as a person of conscience, as a professional, as someone in the role I occupy, however you fill in the reason why you're going to own it. I like to think when it comes to value conflicts, that the first thing you ought to ask yourself is not what would a good principal do or what would a good teacher do? What would a person of conscience do? Who is a principal? Who is a teacher? Because that weighs the value part of the decision much earlier and more appropriately. And it doesn't mix it up with lots of additional rationalizations. Well, it's not my job. You know, it's somebody else's responsibility. So, so those two things, when you observe you're willing to observe what's going on in front of you, and then you're willing to own it. Uh, and the difficulties at both of those stages is where you find people flooded with rationalizations to do nothing. And it's talking back to those rationalizations and stepping into your role as a person of conscience, your role as a professional, and occupying it uh, with a sense of duty. That's 
the essential first step. Yeah, that's that's really good. And I, I like one thing that you just mentioned offhand, offhand in there is that you can sometimes look away and then things get bigger. And then pretty soon they're so big, you have to do something. And, and that I think is really key that we don't want to lose sight of that the earlier you take the step to do something about it, the better it is for everybody because it's not as big a deal. So in a one-on-one meeting with your superintendent, you could say something early on, or you could go along to get along and then it gets out to everybody. And then the whole school district is doing it. And you from the very beginning had a conflict with it and knew it wasn't the right thing. Right. And, and I like to say when it comes to values, there's no such thing as a small conflict over values. It's just a category difference. It's, you can have a small disagreement over the schedule. You can have a small disagreement over who's going to take turns with this duty or that duty, or who's going to, you know, attend a meeting, but you never have a small dispute over values uh, because you never know when it comes to values whether a dispute is small or not. And and very often in the example you just gave, your alarm bells went off because of something the superintendent said. You're sitting there and you know your professional intuitions and your moral intuitions are running down a road that says, this isn't right. We ought to talk about it. And then you just decide to not turn toward it, but turn away from it. And then the moment passes. That's a habit. And, um, you know, Aristotle, who was a pretty smart guy when it came to morality and virtue, said that virtue is a habit. And most major religions say virtue is a habit. It's not something you can count on if you don't practice it. It gets harder to do the right thing if you keep doing the wrong thing. The, the Chinese, one of my Chinese students, uh, MBA students, once told me that Chinese have an interesting saying from their culture, you know, like a thousand years ago. Don't do evil just because you think it's a little evil. And uh, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> I like that too. And And so, you know, you you see something, you say something. Yeah. It's 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 uh now what you say, how you say it, who you say it to, these are all interesting strategic questions and they bear looking at and you, we need organizational intelligence and emotional intelligence and you know perspective yeah. taking and strategy. But but committing to to this will not this is not something I'm just gonna like pass on. Then you uh, are in the right frame of mind and people begin to know that that's who you are. And so then you, then you are the guy who steps up uh, and speaks up, but effectively, effectively, right. you know, that it's yeah. really important to remember that because I think one of the things in the literature on this that I discovered when I was writing the conscience code is that the most common term for people who speak up is whistleblower and whistleblower. What does that imply? It implies that to speak up, you're already on the top of the building with a megaphone and you're shouting to the, at, at the whole city. And if they don't listen, you can jump off the top of the roof to prove your point. No, that's not what this is about. This is not about that at all. Maybe, maybe in an extreme case with great evil or great misconduct and no one's listening and you're, you're stuck, you know, like Moses with the duty, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. But that's, that's like 0.0001%. 
And the real action is in the little value conflicts, which as a person of conscience, not a whistleblower, a person with a conscience who knows mm-hmm. right from wrong, you made a commitment that there is no such thing as a small value conflict, and you are going to speak up and do it effectively. That's, that's what I think is what really makes the difference in attitude. Yeah, I, I like that. And I, so I, we, we could talk for a very long time about this, but I want to take a specific example that every single principal I think has dealt with in some way, shape or form. And so this example is one that I have specifically heard, but it is, it is not just this thing. So we're going to talk about a specific topic, but I want people to be able to extrapolate beyond that of sure. the same types of things. So in this situation, a superintendent has said, um, for all of our English language learner students, we are going to have them be over here in a separate group. We're going to give them special attention, and they're basically going to spend the majority of the day learning English like we would teach a kid Spanish or any other language. Um, and we are going to pull them off to the side. They're not going to be with all their peers. And the uh, superintendent is also going to say, the staff belongs to the federal programs department and you as a principal, you don't deal with anything that they do. It's all on them. Now, there are a lot of issues with that. Number one, kids benefit if they're learning a language from being where the language is being spoken and used. And so that's a benefit. Also, kids benefit from being around their peers and um, a principal principal benefits from being able to work with the staff that is in his building and not being not allowed to work with them, for example. So in that situation, how would a principal have this conversation with their superintendent and be able to overcome these challenges that are facing them? And keep in mind, folks, as you're listening, that this is about how do you have a conversation with your superintendent when they're doing something that you know in your heart is not right and you need to put a stop to it. And for whatever reason, they're still doing it, but we may not know the reason yet. All right. Okay. All right. Enough background for you, Richard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, my sister was a principal in a school, in a, a middle school in San Diego. So I have a little insight into that world. And I've, I, I've taught in middle school myself before I got to be a professor at Wharton. So the, and I, and I live in a bureaucracy called the University of Pennsylvania right. uh, in a city that's run by city council, which is, I've testified before on civic matters. So I have a sense of what some of the complications are. So, so first of all, um, the, the, the number one dynamic here is to recognize the pressure you're under and, and give, it a, give it a name. I, I mean, this is in the book, I, could, I go where there are five different kinds of pressures you can, feel, you can be exerted on to do the wrong thing. And uh, peer pressure comes up. That happens a lot with kids, uh, happens a lot with colleagues. And the second is authority pressure. And that's what you're getting here. Just for information, the third is pressure on, based on incentives. People are misaligned. The incentives are pushing them to do the wrong thing. And they're just going down the path of least resistance. The third is the role you're in is is, uh, defining this as a duty which is wrong. But your role is in conflict with this. Uh, And in some ways, the case you put has uh, the principal being uh, given a role, but then being told, don't play it. Uh, in this particular circumstance. And the final one is systemic pressure. Now, systemic pressure is some practice that's that's pervasive. So if, for example, uh, in the example you gave, uh, the entire uh, United States Department of Education had thrown a mandate out 
that this superintendent was simply implementing and didn't have much choice on themselves, then the principal would be confronting systemic pressure. And no discussion with the superintendent, we're probably going to go anywhere because the superintendent, in fact, may be on the same side as the principal. But having defined all these five principles, which makes a nice um, acronym, PAIRS, P-A-I-R-S, I think you first you name the pressure because with the pressure comes a uh, identifiable set of possible solutions <laughs> that, mm-hmm. you know, peer pressure is different from authority pressure. You might do different things. So you've got some authority pressure and, and you haven't defined it to be systemic pressure, but you've got a uh, authority pressure and maybe uh, some role contradictions that are, are being thrown at you. You said, we're not sure why the superintendent's doing this, but my first bit of advice, if I was counseling superintendent, or, I mean, the principal would be to f- see what you can suss out about why it is the the superintendent's doing this. Because very often, the way to unlock a values conflict is to understand the pressure that your other person's under. Because most people behave reasonably most of the time from their own point of view. And one of the big pitfalls and sort of traps for a person trying to advance something is to say, this person is crazy, arbitrary, evil, ideological, uh, you know, under the sway of demonic powers, whatever it is. And that immediately removes them from the realm of dialogue, reason, and negotiation, because you've identified them as crazy. And that's not helpful. Most people are not crazy. So yeah. the first thing would be, if I were the superintendent, why would I be giving this order and find out what some of the reasons might be? Now, let me pause right there, though, because I, I think that this is an important piece. A lot of times I hear principals say when they're confronted with these kinds of issues is they say, well, they're the boss and I'm going to follow orders and do whatever they say to do. Ultimately, I'm going to do my job, which they interpret their job to mean I'm going to be a good soldier okay. and follow orders that I'm giving. Personally, I don't think that that's the right way to frame your job. And can you give me some feedback on that and whether or not that's a, a, a right place to be or or help me figure that part out? Well, you have to choose your battles. You know, you can't make an issue of everything or else you're the, you know, you're just going to not become, you'll become ineffective and no one will listen to you anymore. So I'm taking the example you're giving as a major challenge to this principle's values of what education ought to be. And, and, and not just a disagreement over some technical policy or some, you know, practice that could be defended, you know, either way, but something for the, for I'm, I, when I say person of conscience, I don't get into what right. your conscience is. I just ask you to put that identity on you with the conscience you have. You know, we know that about 3% of people don't have consciences. They're called psychopaths. And so my book and my teaching and my work is not devoted to curing the problem of psychopathology. It's like the other 97%. So I think it's, I think that the assuming that this principle takes this as an issue of values for them, that it's a more important issue of principle. Uh, that a lot hangs on it being done right because a lot of other things could go wrong if this erodes this value. I still think then it's still important to ask, uh, okay, why would the principal have a different, or the superintendent have a different view? And then right along with that is, who can I talk to 
that can give me some insights into what their perspective might be. Now, I teach negotiation. I teach persuasion and influence. I teach it to executives from all over the world. I've taught Navy SEALs. I've taught FBI hostage negotiators. You know, I've been doing it for 35 years. And the first thing, whenever you have a difficult conversation with someone, whether it's a, you know, you're in Afghanistan and you're trying to talk to an Afghan elder, or if you're a UN diplomat and you're trying to figure out how to get peace in the Gaza, you have to understand, you have to take some perspective on what the other person's mindset is. What's their motivation? Because eight times out of 10, the motivations they have are things you might be able to help them with. Instead of immediately setting this up as a conflict, you know, I'm on my position, you're on your position, I'm, I'm going to persuade you or, or, or argue with you as to why I'm right and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Very seldom does that work. What works is I'm really interested in this uh, order that you're, uh, you know, or this, this suggestion you put in and, and the strength of it. I, I can see many reasons why it's not a great idea, but I'm looking to find out what the reasons are that it's, it is a great idea. And I'd love to hear more from you about that. Better than that even is some preliminary work where you discuss it with a friend of yours who's married to a member of the school board or another principal uh, who's dealt with this guy longer than you have, or you know, the head of the teachers union, if there's a union who has to deal with this person all the time. And you say, this, this thing is coming down. And frankly, it seems to me to violate just about every principle that we uh, believe in, in an effective education. But this guy seems to think it's a good idea. I'd like to get your input on why you think he's doing this. And what's, what do you think the pressures are on that person? What mindset is he bringing? What belief system is he bringing? So you really begin to, you know, and in our workshops, what I would do if I had, let's say I had a client and they were the principal and we had this problem and we have 30 global executives and nonprofit leaders uh, in the room and we're going to, we're going to actually, you know, like help this person. I would create a role play and I would tell the principal, okay, I'm going to give you a team of four people and I want you to just debrief, just unload these on these four people, everything you know about this situation. And then I'm going to ask you to play the superintendent in this conversation. And I'm going to ask two of your colleagues who now know a lot about your position to play you. And I'm going to rehearse a conversation between you. And you have to make the best arguments you can on behalf of the superintendent's position. And we're going to do that for 20 minutes. And what what I you know what you find when you actually sit in the other person's shoes is not so much oh well they're right I'm wrong that's not that but what you find is oh this argument is persuasive that one not persuasive oh this motivation you know I'm I'm sitting here feeling really vulnerable in this position and I really need this kind of help to get me out of it and I'd really love to have that kind of ally to be my cover for it. And if I could just get so-and-so to like come out in favor of another idea, I'd be all, no problem. I'd be indifferent. There are lots of insights that come. So this perspective taking is what we call it, is an exercise. And you can actually do it and you can get better at it and you can practice it and you can get insights from it. And so that that's yeah. definitely job one, not get your arguments lined up. That That's second step. First step, get into their head, figure who who they are and why they're doing this. Well, and that I think is a, a, a really 
sage piece of advice, but also very challenging because in this particular situation we're talking about it and in many others, it seems like there's no rhyme or reason to it. And I can't even fathom what that is. So I appreciate you suggesting to talk to other people to figure it out. Yeah, because I, the way I like to say this, because this happens in so many situations, a, a, a collective bargaining negotiation where the union is taking a position or a, a foreign affairs negotiation where the foreign government's taking a position. Uh, and, and you sit there and go, these people, there can't possibly be a reason why they're doing this other than to get me. And that's just very seldom the case. Uh, you know, they are actually operating under some schema that makes sense to them. And I like to say, calling someone else crazy or irrational is a failure of imagination on your part. You simply have decided not to spend the synaptical energy to imagine what is happening in their heads because it's there. And, you know, it's ultimately a mystery, right? Existentially, humans are separate creatures and we can't get inside someone else's heart. But you can get closer and you can use the information you get as you trying to generate kind of, is it this, is it this, to, to generate a list of questions. So then when you start this conversation with a superintendent, and by the way, I would, I would argue that you shouldn't have it alone with the superintendent. You should bring an ally that is uh, the assistant principal or someone that this other person knows and has reason to respect. Because it puts a person in a very difficult place to sit in front of somebody they know and respect and make a silly argument. So if you're there with an ally, and then you say to them, you know, I've been trying to figure this out because I think we disagree on this policy, but I'm trying to figure out what's motivating you and why it is that this is coming down. And here are some of the thoughts that came up. Um, maybe you're getting some political pressure from, uh, from the school board, or maybe there's a parent who's really powerful in... Uh, the community, and they 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 want these children to be separated from our uh, the mainstream, or maybe uh, you know there's a fast track uh, you know Ivy League bound set of parents, and they're uh, they think these kids are dragging down their kid, and that's pressuring you. But the, you know whatever it is, you know maybe you could help us out because we're just speculating. What is it that's really driving this? And get them to tell you as best they can what it is, and then as you learn. Your mind can click in with uh, framing your position uh, and aligning it with those underlying interests that the other person has, uh, aligning it with the uh, insecurities they may be, uh, you know, facing or the challenges, and saying, you know, that's that's a really tough problem. I'm glad you're the superintendent and not me because you must get these every day, and you know, I only have to deal with them every now and then. Let me see if I can help. What can we do to help you with this and get kind of a more balanced outcome, but solve your problem. Superintendent's not giving you. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, once you get a hook on what the problem is, because these are just outcomes, right? They don't, they don't tell you what the problem is. So then when you, you know, get your hook into the problem, then you can start trying to inch a little bit closer. Now, let's just say that you've done all that and the principal isn't giving you anything. And uh, they're just, I mean, the superintendent, sorry. And they're just saying, look, I'm the boss, do it. Um, then I think, you know, you know, your interests are strictly in conflict. And again, I'm, I'm assuming the value is, is important enough. Then I think you move from collaboration 
and uh, help and strategy and all that, you have to move to power. And this superintendent, as powerful as they look to you, is actually powerless as they perceive it because they face pressures and bosses and, you know, and threats that have them scared every night. And so now you have to create a situation in which you and your colleagues and the allies that believe as you do become a pressure source that's more painful than the other ones that are pushing on them that they consider most painful now. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a principle of leadership that uh, the great leader is someone who makes the status quo unendurable. And so, you know, that's risky, but if you believe in it and it's the right thing to do, uh, a lot of uh, good outcomes have been had because people were able to, met, to rally the forces of good to combat the forces that were pushing them in the wrong direction and bring them to their senses because you simply were able to bring the pressure there. You become a pressure. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that because a lot of times as principals, we think, well, we can't go against our supervisors because we need to do what they tell us to. And we expect that from our teachers. And when the time is right, though, when the person really is wrong and there's not a not a good reason for them to be doing that, that's really the only choice, isn't it? Absolutely. And and. Uh, again, I'm assuming that the principal is going to have allies within the school. Mm -hmm. That this is not going to be something where the teachers are greatly divided, and the you know the English as a second language uh, faculty all want this to happen. Uh, they see the costs and the silliness and the sacrifice that is to their own students of having this be implemented the way it is. So there's strength in numbers, and you rally uh, your constituents in an effective way. You know, you're not. Uh, I know, you know, school systems are highly politicized already. Uh, it's likely to galvanize and throw people against the wall on all different sides if you push the wrong button. Uh, but something like this doesn't have the same identity politics feeling to it as mm -hmm. it might if it was something along the lines of, you know, LGBTQ or race or some other big hot button category that's going to bring everybody out and you know, start marching around in circles. So if, if, if you get to one of those, then I think you have, you know, there's a distribution of problems, you know, they go from easy to uh, mostly in the middle and, and, and then they go way off to the other distribution, which is, you know, volatile, impossible, emotional, and life-threatening. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is no tool book that I have or that I've ever found that solves those ones on the far end of the distribution uh, every time. And that's the reason why humans keep having wars. And it's the reason why we need democracy instead of autocracy, because we've created a system in which we get to fight with each other and not kill each other. That's the, uh, that's the ultimate goal of democracy. Yeah, I like that, uh, <laughs> that phrasing of it. We get to fight with each other and not kill each other. That's, that's a yeah. good interpretation. So, 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 you know, at the end of the day, I, I like to call my book, The Conscious Code, uh, it's kind of a guerrilla warfare guide to people of conscience mm -hmm. to step up for their values. And I say guerrilla warfare because these are, these are usually more like campaigns mm -hmm. than they are events. And so you have to be persistent and you have to have strategies and you have to think that you're less powerful than the people you're up against, 
But, you know, I mean, we just saw an example, and without bringing politics into it, uh, a, a very relatively small group of people in remote mountains in Central Asia, you know, persistently battled the greatest power on earth for 20 years, and they just won. So, you know, if you believe in what you're doing, and you're up against people who are not quite as sure as to why they're doing what they're doing, uh, and you're persistent, and you're effective, uh, you you can move a mountain. Yeah, for sure. So when I, what I really appreciate is that you're not saying you just need to roll over and take it. And that's what a lot of a lot of principals feel like they have to do because they have to follow orders and do what they're told. And um, one, uh, I don't remember where I heard this, but someone said that your job is only as meaningful as your willingness to lose it for the right thing or something along those lines. I don't- something like that. I would, I put it another way. I'd say your values are only worth the price you're willing to pay for them. Oh yeah. That's much better. You should write books about this stuff. I'll give you, can I tell you a little story? Yeah, please. You get time for that? Yeah. So this is this, because you mentioned authority and the importance of it. My dad was a general in the Marine Corps. So I know all about this authority thing, but there's, there's no more authority based organization in domestic society than the police. Um, And as part of the book, I did a lot of research on people who are people of conscience and who stood up. And, um, and so here's, here's an example of uh, sort of, you know, what can happen and what your duties are. So this was a young rookie police officer in the New Jersey State Troopers was in, he just graduated from uh, from police academy and he was first night duty on uh, his mentor and he were driving a police vehicle and they passed a vehicle uh, that looked like, you know, didn't have the right registration on it in the middle of the night. And they turned and and followed it. By the time they 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 got near enough to it. It had pulled off to the side of the road. It was dark. And, um, and they went up to the, uh, to the car and did the usual thing. But, but the police officer, the junior guy, realized, noticed that the driver of the car wasn't the same person that was driving it when they were chasing it. And, you know, the, the car had beaten them to this little pullover around a corner. So, and, um, you know, he said, where's the guy who was driving? And it was a guy. And there was a woman sitting behind the car now. They were teenagers. Uh, and uh, she didn't say anything. And then, and then, and then the, the senior officer came along and um, said, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's get out of this vehicle to the woman. Uh, you know, you're under arrest. And she said, but I wasn't driving the car. And he said, uh, you're resisting arrest now. And then she took off into the woods. Uh, and so, you know, they gave chase, they tackled her, uh, it turned out that, um, you know, she smelled like beer. Uh, and so they arrested her for, uh, drunk driving, uh, resisting arrest, you know, all this stuff. And the junior officer knew that she hadn't been driving the car. Uh, and he knew that his senior officer knew that. Uh, and so he was sitting there with this information that they just made a false arrest. He's his first night on duty and he's, and he's thinking, well, you know, my senior officer is the boss, you know, I I just got to go along with this. You know, I, I don't know exactly. Maybe this is the way it works, you know? So about halfway to the house, to the, to the police station with this woman in the backseat, he realizes that he can't do that, 
that he everything he believes in, his father was a police officer. That's why he wanted to be a police officer. Everything he believes in, why he became a police officer is 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 in the trash can if he's willing to be complicit in a false arrest on his first night at work. Yeah. And so, you know, long story short, he refuses to fill out the arrest report. Uh, the senior officer has to do it. When it comes time for the woman to go to court, he testifies that she wasn't driving. And and his senior officer is is just livid mm. that he's being insubordinated. And so from this little acorn, you know, a mighty story grew of him actually discovering a, a, a cabal of senior officers in the New Jersey uh, trooper group called the Lords of Discipline that were doing this all the time and that were behaving badly. And he, uh, you know, was forced uh, to be more of a whistleblower than he was just a person of conscience. But, but that little moment, you know, where authority was overwhelming, you know, he's a rookie police officer. It's just not the right instinct to say, well, I'm just going to make my life meaningless and my role meaningless and give my, my soul to this senior person uh, and, and come to disrespect my profession and my calling by realize, you know, by going along and becoming complicit in behavior I know to be wrong. It's mm -hmm. just not worth it. You know, we all have security. We all have families that we need to support. We all have professions that we're, we're, um, we're part of. But there's a line where your professional life becomes uh, something where you don't respect yourself. Yeah. And frankly, life's too short to spend it disrespecting yourself. You know, um, and that, that it's when you allow yourself to to be complicit in stuff that you don't respect in a major way. I like to you know go back to choose your battles. You can't fight every battle as if it were you know uh, the Battle of the Bulge or Normandy Landing. But choose your battles. But once you've chosen, um, you have to realize that there's some things more important than security. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'll give you one more example in my research. You ever heard of Anne Frank, yeah. uh, World War II Jewish girl who wrote the diary? Yeah. Well, the the woman who sheltered her in Amsterdam was named uh, Meet Pease. She was an Austrian uh, woman who was working for, for the family in the house where they ultimately sheltered the Frank and her family. And they came. They you know, they the Frank family came to Meese Pete and uh, and her boss and said. We need you to help us uh, hide from the Nazis. And uh, they did. After the war was over, they interviewed her and said, why did you do it? I mean, you put yourself at risk. You put your, you know, everything, that, your life at risk, everything. And she said, well, first of all, she asked me to do it. And when you're asked that kind of question and you know you can help, you realize that there's some things that are more important than just going on with your own life. And, and, and she said, I could foresee many sleepless nights if I'd made the other decision. So here's a woman who knew the cost of behaving the wrong way, of going against her, her values, of going against her, her duty to humanity, really, and realized that her life would basically not be worth much if she said no. And, the, you know, as I said, short 
If you live to be 90, you only get 32,850 days on a planet. If you, you can do your own math, most of us are, you know, like the, the number is dwindling. It's not uh, going to get more. And you got to figure out how to spend them. And uh, one way to make sure you spend them right is to be at peace with yourself over the values that you hold. Well, and I think that's so important because for all the decisions that I've made as a principal, I have a clear conscience and I feel like I did the best I could in the moment with what I had. And I made mistakes and I didn't stand up when I should have, but I also knew that I didn't have the courage to stand up in certain situations. But there are other situations where I definitely stood up and said, we're not, we're not doing things this way. And those times where I did say that, um, sometimes as the one in a position of power, sometimes at saying that to someone in a position of power. But whenever I did that, I had this overwhelming feeling of resonance with my values, that things were in alignment. And it felt, it felt beautiful, like a beautiful symphony feels when you hear it. There's a, there's a, there's a concept. Uh, I teach a course uh, on the meaning of success in addition to this values conflict stuff. And one of my students wrote a paper once um, about a sort of definition of happiness. And she had found a rabbi who was sort of a, you know, a motivational speaker kind of guy. And, um, and she wrote a paper on happiness and she, she framed it around this rabbi's definition of happiness. And the, the definition was the feeling that comes when you're doing what you know you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And that's not happiness like ice cream cone or you're proud of your son. Or It's happiness at the deepest level. The feeling that comes when you're doing what you know you should be doing. You should be with a, uh, a loved one at their bedside when they're in pain, even if it means you have to skip a day work or, you know, break a promise to somebody for something else. You know, you should be, uh, you know, doing something for these values that you hold most dear, even if you lose. It's not about winning and losing. It's about standing up for them. Uh, And no one's perfect. In my classes, uh, I, I get to this part of my course on responsibility, and I say, I want everybody to bring a story of an occasion where they had an important moral or ethical value, and they, and they feel like they did the right thing. They did something that was, they're proud of now. And I want you to bring another story of a moment when you had this kind of conflict, and you now realize you fell short, that you could have done better. And everybody has a story of both kinds. This is so nobody's, you know, like 100% batting a thousand when it comes to difficult conflicts of this kind. But you can learn from both. You gain more confidence from the stories of success. You have more humility and you, I'm going to try better. I'm going to learn more. I'm going to be more effective for the ones where you fell short. Well, that's, that's totally true. And I think that's a good place to wrap up our conversation today. Um, My final question though, is what is one thing after all we've talked about, because there's been a lot, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? I guess I just go back to identity. It's easy to get wrapped up in your identity as a principal. It's easy to get wrapped up in your sort of professional credentials and your, your sort of sense of status. And it's all effective and useful if you're using it for the right purpose. But if all you're doing is thinking of yourself 
as protecting the status, then I think you've missed the boat. So my one piece of advice would be to go back to the reason you're doing what you're doing and ask yourself if you're a person of conscience in that role, if you really are willing to step up and express your values in that role. If you find yourself saying, no, I really, I've already sacrificed so much that I've lost my sense of conscience in this role, then I think you should find another job. That's powerful. That is, that is definitely powerful. And I, I am thinking of the times where, as I mentioned, I have a clear conscience and feel like I did the best that I could with what I had at the time. And I feel very comfortable saying that because I don't, I don't stay awake at night thinking about those things that I could have done if I would have tried harder or been more vocal or whatever the case is. I feel like I, I said all the things that I needed to say that I was able to have a clear conscience saying I did it. And I, and I feel confident that I did the best that, that I possibly could, even though things didn't go my way, you know? Yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah, that you can't, you don't, you, no one has, you know, all seeing power. So I, I just think, you know, in addition to that identity thing, I would just underline, and that's why I wrote the book, do it effectively. Mm-hmm. You know, just standing up and shouting at somebody else that you're right and they're wrong. Doesn't work. No, uh, you're not going to persuade them, and they're you're, they're you're just going to generate emotions, and everybody's going to get angry, and nobody's going to go anywhere, and you know you've actually burned your credibility a bit. So it's like be a person of conscience, but do the homework to think about the steps you need to take to be effective at being a person of conscience. And yeah. I think that that's the uh, that's the hard part, but it's that it, that's the part that gives you pride because more often when you're effective, your side wins. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you again, Richard. This has been awesome talking with you today. Again, the book is called The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career. You can get that wherever you find books. And thanks again, Richard, for being part of Transformative Principle. Great, Jethro. I really appreciate the opportunity. Take care. Hey, middle school principals, what if I told you that all your teachers had to do to teach your students really valuable social and emotional competencies was just press play? In Control SEL is a fully automated video curriculum that teachers and students absolutely love. And that's because it's easy. And it looks just like a Netflix or a YouTube show. So all you have to do to hear about how it can completely transform your school is schedule your call. Tell us Jethro sent you and you'll get 20% off if you feel like it's a good fit. So go now to www.incontrolsel.com slash strategy call to schedule your call today. The link will be in the show notes. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, FlexTime enables students to get extra help or intervention 
meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.